It's a, it's a joy to be able to watch our, watch our kids and worship with them, isn't it? And, and uh, you know, in a way, it's, uh, it, it's kind of fitting that they, were, uh, that they were helping to lead our, our worship through singing today. And it, it, it's always humbling for me when I see God working in ways that I did not anticipate or, or really plan for. But, um, but in our passage this morning, we're, we're going to, to see Jesus make a statement about how it's the little children and, and not the, the wise and the learned that, uh, uh, that accept him. And so, you know, even though, even though he's using the image of little children to speak of humility in general and humility in adults, uh, we get quite the fitting reminder today that, uh, that even children, or especially children, are, are well positioned to, uh, to receive Jesus and place their faith in him. So it's a, it's a joy to see that. And thank you, kids, for the work that you've been doing. I, I know all the younger ones are in children's church now, but the older kids that were in there, thanks for, for serving us in that way this morning. And not just, not just participating, but, but truly serving as, you, as you've led us in worship, worship. So we appreciate that, kids. And the adults that made all that happen, too. I should not forget that because there's work that went into that. So thank you for that as well. Well, as I, uh, as I stated in last week's sermon, we, we've come to the point in the Gospel of Luke where a shift takes place. So up to this point in Luke's Gospel, there has, there's been quite a few miracles that Luke has recorded, miracles performed by Jesus, with, with uh, a little bit of teaching sprinkled in. From this point forward, from this point to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and resurrection, there will be quite a bit of teaching from Jesus with a few miracles sprinkled in. So we really hit that shift this morning. And we're actually going to examine what might be the most famous parable spoken by Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, if, if, if that one gets beat out by the parable of the prodigal son, it's not by much. I mean, both those two are probably the, the most uh, well-known, not just within the church, but, but even within broader culture as well. And, uh, and I, I can't count the number of times I've read the parable of the Good Samaritan in my life. Uh, but regardless of the dozens or maybe hundreds of times that I've read it, Something hit me during, uh, during my study for today's sermon that, that I just had not noticed before. And it wasn't something small. I mean, it, it was something that takes this parable really to a whole new level for me. Um, so with what I hope is an effective cliffhanger right there, we're going to start just a little bit before that parable because we've got to get the context of, of what's going on as Jesus spoke that. So, so if we look before that a little bit in chapter 10, um, you hopefully were able to view uh, the midweek devotional that came to your inbox on Thursday. And you might be saying, oh, I didn't know he's going to quiz us over that. And I didn't, didn't realize we were responsible for that. But if the dog ate your homework, here's, here's what it was, right? So in Luke chapter 10, it began with Jesus appointing 72 people and sending them out really just like he had done with the 12 apostles a little earlier in Luke's gospel. 
there, there's many, many similarities to that first sending with these 72. The, the, the 72 were given power to heal in Jesus' name. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God, just like the 12. And, and they were to not take extra um, provisions with them either. So, so very similar to what we had seen before. So as we pick it up this morning in chapter 10, verse 17, those 72 are returning. They're coming back from that trip, and, and they're reporting to Jesus what they'd seen and what they'd heard. So this is uh, Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but that, but, excuse me, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So just like with the 12 apostles, just, just like what they experienced when they were sent out, the 72 also performed miracles through the power of Jesus that was given to them. And then not only did they heal the sick, but demons were forced to submit to them as well. It makes perfect sense to me that when they returned to Jesus, they would be excited about that. I, I think I would be too if I had been in their, in their shoes and had experienced that. But in the midst of this report that they give to Jesus, he cautioned them to not rejoice too much in those things. In a way, Jesus kind of throws a wet blanket on their rejoicing. They come back all pumped and amped. Man, Jesus, this is what just happened. And Jesus said, oh, well, hold on just a second. Why would he do that? Why caution them about being joyful about the very things that he had empowered them and commissioned them to do? That's what he sent them out to do. So why kind of hold them back just a little bit? I think, the, I think the answer to that lies at the statement at the end of verse 20. He said, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, so for as great as it is to, to see God's power in action and, and see God's power working through us, it's even greater to consider our identity in Jesus the, the fact that our names are written in heaven in the book of life is, is much greater than any miracle of healing or exorcism that we might see or participate in here on earth. And, and it's not to discount miracles that are performed in that manner, but, but it, it's to recognize the even greater blessing that comes from being adopted into the family of God, to, to dwell with him for all eternity in heaven. That can never be taken away from us. That'll never be taken away. And, and if we rejoice in that reality, we'll never find ourselves lacking a reason to rejoice. Regardless of what else would go on around us, we could always rejoice in that. If our rejoicing is placed solely in the temporary miracles of this life, as great as they can be, we'll find ourselves without much reason to rejoice when those miracles don't come according to our own desires. You know, we kind of talked about that a month or so ago. So if all we're rejoicing in is those great signs, then 
we'll find ourselves without reason to rejoice in seasons of this life, but if our ultimate rejoicing is in Jesus and our identity in him, we'll always have that. It'll never be taken away. We're truly blessed because of that, and so we ought to rightly rejoice for the rest of our days in that and on into eternity as well. And I think that's what Jesus is highlighting here to these 72 that returned. Sure, rejoice in what happened, but even above that, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what Luke goes on to record then is some of Jesus rejoicing. And, and when we get to these next couple verses here, this, this is actually the only place in the Gospels that we are explicitly told that Jesus rejoiced. Now, I'm sure he did on many other occasions, but the wording is only used here in this part of Luke's Gospel. And again, what we see Jesus rejoicing over is not the miraculous displays of power and authority, but, but instead he's rejoicing over those who have accepted him. Look at what he says in verse 21. It says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the time in history had finally come when God himself was being revealed to mankind through Jesus the Son. God had been revealing himself all throughout history. He, he revealed himself through creation. He'd, he'd done it through speaking directly to individuals. He'd done it through the giving of the law. I mean, God, God was always revealing himself. But, but at this point in history, with Jesus walking the earth, he was revealing himself in the, in the clearest way that he could to us through Jesus, through his becoming human. And the reason that Jesus is seen rejoicing here is because there are those in the world who've seen that revelation, who've seen him, seen God revealing himself through him, and they've chosen to accept it, and they've chosen to believe it, and Jesus rejoiced in that. But then he goes on, and it's not necessarily the people whom you might think who are receiving Jesus You'd think that it's those who studied the Old Testament law and who studied the prophets and, and those who were part of the priesthood and, and the religious leaders who would be the first to recognize God's revelation of himself through Jesus. But that wasn't how things were working out. That wasn't it at all. It was those wise and learned people, according to the standards of the world, that were actually rejecting Jesus and all the while, it was those who came to him in humility, like little children, who were the ones accepting him. And, and he goes on to say, you know, it's one thing to know about God. A, a person can study 
creation, you can study the Bible, you can study church history, and you can learn plenty about God. You, you could even get a doctorate in biblical theology, become one of the world's foremost experts uh, on, on the Bible, on, on things about God. But that doesn't mean that you know who God is. And, and what does Jesus say? No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God, knowing who he is. The wise, the learned in the world, they, they seemed to know plenty about God, but they didn't actually know God. They were not receiving him for who he was. It's only those who, who listened to Jesus' words and accepted those words and, and accepted him who came to know who Jesus is. And, and, and as I said earlier, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was only little children who learned who God is. It was, it was those who came humbly before Jesus like little children who were blessed to receive God's uh, revelation of himself. So I think there's a good picture that we have as our kids are, are, are leading us in worship that it, it just takes the humility like a child to come before Jesus and to have God reveal himself to us. And then after saying this, Jesus, he, he turned to his disciples and told them privately that, that they're so blessed. They're so blessed to see that revelation of God. Again, the reason that they should rejoice is not because of God's miraculous power flowing through them, but because they've seen God revealed to them, because they've come to accept who he is. So many of the forefathers and prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament longed to see Jesus reveal himself in that way, but it was only in that present time with the coming of Jesus that uh, that, that revelation was actually taking place. And so how blessed those disciples were and how, what a great cause for rejoicing they had. And for us coming after them, I think we can say that as well. What, how blessed we are to be able to read in the Bible about this revelation of God. We don't see Jesus walking in front of us, but we have him revealed to us through his words, through his actions. And that can be great cause for us for rejoicing as well. So as Jesus talks about this, we, we come now to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we get this picture of one of those wise and learned people coming before Jesus. So look at what happens here as the parable is set up in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to him, uh, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. We're going to stop right there before we get into the story. So 
So this lawyer is exhibit A of the wise and the learned. And, and, and the lawyer, some, some translations say expert in the law. He asks Jesus a question about inheriting eternal life, right? He said, how do I get my name written in heaven? And so Jesus responded to him with another question. What, what, is, what is written in the law? I mean, Jesus has to be saying this tongue in cheek. This is an expert in the law. He only got that title because he, he knows the religious law inside and out, backwards and forwards. So, I mean, th- th- in a way, this is a gimme for the lawyer. I mean, I mean, he knows the answer. Of course, he's going to be able to give the academically correct answer, and he does. It's exactly what he does. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer gives the right answer. And, and Jesus' response to him is basically, yeah, you're right do that and you'll live. You got it. Uh, now, you know, in our, in our desire not, not to fall into a works righteousness, we might become a little bit uncomfortable here because it sure sounds like Jesus is telling this guy that if he completely upholds the law, then he will inherit eternal life. Kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? But let me ask this question. Would Jesus be wrong in saying that? If a person could live a perfect life, never once break the law, wouldn't they be granted eternal life? I mean, if we say that we can't attain eternal life because we've broken God's law and we can't do it on our own, then doesn't that mean that the one who keeps the law perfectly can attain eternal life? So why not tell this expert in the law to keep the law perfectly? And Jesus said, yeah, that's the right answer. You do that, you've got eternal life. Of course, we know the problem is that we can't. You know, we, we are fallen human beings. We're fallen individuals. We sin in our lives, and so we can't do that. Now, now I don't know the intent of the lawyer's question here, but my hunch is that, that, I mean, it says that he was putting Jesus to the test, so I don't think we should read pure motives into this lawyer, but it, it kind of seems like, uh, you know, when he's not really seeking an honest answer from Jesus, probably seeking to trap Jesus, and so Jesus responds the way he did, and and, and the lawyer almost just kind of like blurts out his next question, you know, in in a way to kind of save himself, and that's what led into this famous parable from Jesus. So look with me at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
Now, before we dive into this parable specifically, uh, I want to push pause quickly and kind of talk about parables in general. Um, Because, as I said, we've moved into the part of Luke's gospel that has a lot more of Jesus' teaching, so uh, a big chunk of that teaching will be parables, and so I think there's a few helpful things to just kind of consider regarding parables in general. The first thing is that a parable is not an historical story. So it's not telling a story about real people with real names and real situations saying real words. That's not what parables are. Instead, it is a created story using common items or situations that's used to make a, a revelation about God or the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing to know. These are not historical events. These are stories that Jesus tells. Second, I think it's important that that we recognize the spiritual truth that a parable is driving at without having to allegorize every detail of the parable. And so here's kind of a, a famous way. There was an early church father named Origen Um, This is how he allegorized the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, the man who set forth is Adam, Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho, the world, the thieves, the invisible powers, the priest, the law, the Levite, the prophets, the Samaritan, Christ, the wounds, disobedience, the beast of burden, the body of Christ, the inn, which takes in everyone, the church, the Samaritans promise the second coming of Christ. So you see what Origen did there? He, he took nearly every detail and changed it to mean something else. That, that's called allegorizing a parable. And, and even though it's a great opportunity to be creative with things, that's not how we ought to read these stories. Jesus did not intend his parables to be received in that way, and so we, we need to push back against that way of doing it. Here's how we should read the parables. We should have our eyes open for the shock value in Jesus' words. When Jesus tells a parable, he's using common items, common situations, but there's something in there that, that is supposed to shock us, shock the original readers for sure, and that, that's really what we need to pick up on. It's, that, it's in that unexpected turn of events that we'll often find the main takeaway or the main point of the parable that Jesus is telling. So if we come back to the specific parable this morning, Good Samaritan, I I, I said at the beginning, uh, I've read this story countless times, and I've generally heard Jesus saying the same thing every time I've read it. What I've always heard Jesus saying in this parable is that I ought to love my neighbor like the Samaritan did. I've, I've understood that according to this story, my neighbor is the one who is beaten and in need of care. But as I was preparing in in my study for today's sermon, I finally realized that I wasn't taking my own advice regarding how to read parables. The thing that would have shocked the original hearers was not the thing that was shocking me. And once I read it, once I heard it the way it was supposed to be heard, 
I mean, the, the light bulb just went off. The Holy Spirit just said, man, that's what it is. So, so what's shocking in this story is not that a man got beaten up on the side of the road. On that road, that, that, that's not an uncommon thing. Travel in that time, it could be dangerous. That was not shocking, that a man would get, and be, would get beaten up on a journey. It wasn't shocking that the priest or Levite passed by the injured man. What was shocking in this story was that a Samaritan man was shown in a positive light, showing compassion and giving care to that injured individual. And I think because we're so far removed from the context, it can be too easy for us to overlook the hostile relationship that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into the history of all of that, but but suffice it to say, those two groups of people didn't like each other and, and really did whatever was necessary to avoid each other. Um, and, and Luke even gives us an example of this uh, at the end of chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaritan territory, which they shouldn't have been doing, by the way. I mean, that, that, was, that was not what a good Jew would do. But they did, and when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, which is absolutely what should have happened according to the culture. Samaritans don't like Jews, so of course they would reject Jesus. James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they were ready to call down fire from heaven and just annihilate all the Samaritans. It's safe to say their attitude was probably in line with the common Jewish attitude of the day. It just probably was, and that attitude would have been reciprocated by the Samaritans as well. So there's hostility there between those two groups. So when Jesus told this parable, those listening to it would have expected it to unfold a certain way. After the injured man was ignored by the two religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, everyone would have expected Jesus to say that an ordinary Jewish man came upon the scene and offered care to the, to the injured individual. That, that's, what, that's what everybody would have expected to happen. After all, Jesus is speaking this parable in response to a question from a religious leader. Wouldn't it be just like a popular teacher to kind of stick it to the religious establishment by having an ordinary Jew be the hero of the story? That's how it should have unfolded in everybody's mind. But instead, Jesus just upsets the apple cart and shocks every Jew there by saying that a hated Samaritan was the one who showed compassion and mercy. I mean, that that story quickly turned from one that the crowd would have loved to one that they would have hated. I mean, just like that, just by bringing a Samaritan into the story. I mean, mean, let's go back to the statements made by the lawyer and, and this conversation between the lawyer and Jesus. The lawyer quotes Leviticus 19. He says, those interested in eternal life should love their neighbor. He then asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And, and in case anyone missed it in the story, which, which would have been impossible when Jesus told it, it, nobody would have missed this. But he asked the lawyer at the end, so who was the neighbor? You asked who the neighbor was. I told you a story. Who was the neighbor in that story? And the lawyer correctly answered that it was the Samaritan man. Even though he couldn't bring himself to mouth the words, right? He just says the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say it. Couldn't even say it was the Samaritan. 
It's just the one who showed mercy. So, who are God's people to love? Their neighbor. Who's the neighbor? The Samaritan in this story. Samaritan is the neighbor. The point of this parable is not to care for those in need, even though that's the way I've kind of always read it. That, that's not the point of this, carable, of this parable. It, it's a great thing to do. Should be true of those following Jesus. We should care for those in need, but that's not the point of this parable. The point of the parable is the command to love your neighbor, which here includes the enemy, Samaritans. So those listening to Jesus were not meant primarily to see themselves as the Samaritan man caring for someone in need. I don't know that they could have done that anyway. Picture themselves as a Samaritan. Even though that's how I often think about the parable. That's where I put myself. I'm supposed to be like the Samaritan. But that's not what Jesus is saying to, to uh, those listening. They were to see themselves as the injured man being cared for by the hated Samaritan. Again, I'm not saying that the followers of Jesus shouldn't care for those in need. We should. Jesus talks about that in so many different places. That, that's just not the main point that he's driving at here. The primary example that we are to follow here is the example of Jesus, who told the story and painted the hated Samaritan man in such a positive light. That's the example that we're supposed to follow in this. The ultimate picture of loving one's neighbors, not the Samaritan man caring for the injured man, even though that's a good picture. The ultimate picture is Jesus loving the Samaritans by humanizing this guy and showing that the Samaritans have value and have worth. I mean, it is an incredible story that he's telling here, making this point about who is the neighbor that is to be loved. I, I want to shift, and I want to end this morning, uh, kind of shift to application for us by contextualizing this parable a little bit, because we're not Jews or Samaritans, and so, so it, can be, it can be tough to f really feel the animosity between these two groups. But I want to contextualize the parable a bit and, and, and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't start prodding our hearts a little more as we hear it with some fresh ears. So, so here's a way we could contextualize it today. Uh, you're on a vacation, and you're visiting Jerusalem. And while you're there, you, you're mugged and you're beaten in a side street. After that, a Christian approaches and sees you and passes by. Likewise, after that, a Jew approaches and sees you and also passes by. Then finally, a Muslim approaches and sees you and has compassion on you and cares for your needs and binds your wounds and takes you in. Which of these three proved to be the neighbor? And I do want us to say it because the lawyer couldn't hear. Who, who was the neighbor? Now go do like the Muslim. Go love your neighbor. I mean, do you hear it how, <laughs> how they would have heard it then? Or how about this? You're in, you're in New York City, 
walking in the financial district and while you're there, you're mugged and you're beaten in a side street. The CEO of a company approaches and, and sees you and passes by. Next, a, a stockbroker comes by. They see you and, and they also pass by. A few minutes later, a communist approaches and sees you and has compassion on you, cares for you, binds your wounds, and meets your needs. Which of those three proved to be a neighbor? Go do like the communist. Go love your neighbor. Or, or, or one more. I'll tell one more. And, and this example can easily be switched around, but I'll tell it in the way that I think will be most impactful in this setting this morning. You're in Washington, D.C., walking near the Capitol, and while you're there, you're mugged and beaten in a side street. And a Republican senator sees you and passes by. A few minutes later, a Republican representative walks by, sees you, and passes by. Finally, a Democrat approaches, sees you, and has compassion on you, and cares for you, and binds your wounds, and meets your needs. Now, who was the neighbor? Now, go do like the Democrat. Go love your neighbor. And again, that can be switched, but for the sake of our context. Now, when Jesus loved the Samaritans, he wasn't agreeing with or validating everything that they believed. Uh, you know, the scene in John chapter 4 with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, it clearly shows that. But, but in the midst of his disagreements with their theology, he still showed them love. That's what was happening there. And, and I, I would even dare say that we could be completely correct theologically, but if we refuse to love those opposed to us, we are in error. I think that describes the lawyer, completely correct theologically, but yet was in error. So we don't have to agree with the beliefs of Muslims or communists or Democrats or any other group of people that, that, that we could identify. But that doesn't negate Jesus' command or his example to love our neighbor. We must humanize those we disagree with. And let's just say it, anything we hear on the news is not going to do that. If all we know about another group is what we hear on the news, they are not humanized to us. They're not. We have to humanize them like Jesus did with the Samaritan, and only then will we recognize them to be our neighbor and will then love them as Jesus calls us to. I, I want to end by just going back to, to the lawyer's statement in verse 27. Just looking at it one more time. I really want us to notice how he summed up the law by giving one single statement. And I know, I know that I, in the NIV and, and some other translations, they kind of make it seem like two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But in the original Greek, the, word, the, the verb for love only appears once. So, so this is all one, and, and the ESV does a great job with this because the word love only appears in the ESV once. But listen to how he says it. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's all one thought. So in other words, if we think that we can carry out the first part about loving God and just ignore the second part as Jesus presents it to us in this parable, then we're quite mistaken. It, It is all one flowing thought that we're called to. And so a vital part of how we love God consists of how we treat our neighbor. And, you know, again, as we've seen in this parable, how we treat the Samaritan, how we treat those who are opposed to us, who are our enemies. Would you stand with me? Let's, uh, let's pray. This is a... That's a high calling, isn't it? We need God's strength to carry that out in our lives. So let's ask him for that this morning. Father, we come to you and I think first off we have to recognize that, uh, that you first loved us. That we in our, in our brokenness and our sinfulness were and are opposed to you. We're even called enemies of God in that state, and and yet you loved us, and so we thank you for that. We thank you that this isn't just some teaching that you gave, but that, that this is you. That you love us. And so we praise you for that. We, we thank you for the impact that has on our lives. We thank you for the ultimate display of your love, dying on the cross, that we can find forgiveness and redemption and restoration. We're truly blessed, as we started talking about this morning. Being adopted into your family is, is incredible, and we thank you for that. But God, we also recognize the calling that you place upon us to to follow your example, to love our neighbor. And God, I, I pray first that you would, you would help us to rightly view those around us. It, it can be easy to, to dehumanize people or groups of people. God, would you, would you just reveal to us when we're doing that? Just prod our hearts, prick our minds, whatever it takes. Help us realize when that's happening that we might we might see people as you do. And God, I have faith that as, as, as you do that in and through us, that, uh, that we will then be ready to, to love our neighbor. God, we know that that's a tough calling. We know that's not the way the world says we ought to do it. We know that's not the way our, the brokenness within us wants us to do it but we know that's your call upon us. So would you strengthen us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us that love that we need? God, as we carry that out, it it is a picture of your kingdom. And we're excited to be able to play a part in that and in so doing, see more and more of your kingdom here on this earth. God, I I desire that, uh, that I would be seen as one who who loves his neighbor. I desire that we as a church body, that that would be a hallmark of us, that we love our neighbor. And not just those that are easy to love, but 
but those who are opposed to us. We give you thanks. God, we praise you for who you are as we conclude this morning by singing further about your love, specifically displayed through your becoming human. Just pray that you would receive our worship, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.